We are going to pray and get started. We are in our fifth week of the letter of Jude. Hard to believe it's already been five weeks. So, Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we are just so thankful for this evening and this chance to get together and to study your word and specifically to study this letter. Lord, the more we're in it, I believe the more applicable we see this letter to be for us today in the 21st century church. So God, I ask that you just open our eyes to see everything in your truth that you would have us to see. Father, I pray that you give us boldness in our culture today to be women who declare the truth, who speak the truth, who proclaim the truth, who live by the truth. God, that is the call of Jude thousands of years ago, but Lord, it is the call for us and for the church today. So may we boldly and courageously pick up this call. I thank you and praise you for that. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so week five, we are, if you want to look at your outline, of course, we know Jude's letter starts with this wonderful assurance to the believer. Um, He calls us the called, beloved by God, and kept for Jesus Christ. We've gone over that this is a believer writing a letter to fellow believers about apostates that have come into the church. After this, he gave us our first descriptions of apostasy and apostates, and you're going to see he does this at several points throughout the letter. His letter has a very strict, tight organization. The past few weeks, we have been going over these three examples of apostate groups in history. So a few weeks ago, the first one we went into was the Israelites in the wilderness. And we saw that this dealt with the Jews and their um, national apostasy. Last week, we dealt with the angels that sinned out of the record in Genesis 6 And we saw their apostasy and rebellion. And tonight, we're going to be treading a little bit more familiar ground as we go into the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So I'm going to try my hardest tonight. You don't have as many notes as normal. So we're going to try to get through the notes so we can definitely have some question time at the end. I'm going to actually try to sit down. Because I think if I stay still, I might get through my notes better and not start walking around and going into other things. So that's my plan for tonight. So, except I know I have to get up because we're about to read the letter. So, before we get into our last example here of um, from the history in the Old Testament, Shaney's going to come and we'll read the letter. And just like always, whether you follow along in your Bible or follow along in your notes. Always be underlining and marking and new things that pop out to you or connections that you made. Um, 
really start doing this, especially in your own Bibles, so that you see this incredible connection throughout the entire Word of God. I am truly convinced, though I can't prove this, um, that you could probably study any book in the Bible and somehow get a connection to every other book because it is one story by one author. So if you'll come read for us. Thank you, Shaney, for reading. And this is the NIV, the new one. Okay. Okay. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him, for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest Darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness 
and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. And to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Shani. Okay. So again tonight, we're going to take the third and last examples of an apostate group that Jude gives us. And we know... that because he is calling for his audience to remember these things, calling to their remembrance, in each of these examples, he does not give us any details on these stories. He is expecting that his audience is fully aware of these three historical events. Now, we talked about that last week in that in dealing with the event of the angels who sinned, That one is not very well known. It's not taught. We went through that last week, why it's not taught. But tonight, Sodom and Gomorrah would actually be the most familiar of the three, both in Jude's time and probably today. In fact, if you look at your first connection there in red, you will see that this last example is one of the most referenced events in other places throughout Scripture. I, I can't sit down. <laughs> okay, not very long. <laughs> so, of course, we see it in Genesis, and we're going to be digging into this tonight, but it is mentioned several times in Deuteronomy, in Isaiah, multiple times in Jeremiah, once in Lamentations, several times in Ezekiel. When you dig into these, which I hope you do this week, the passages in Ezekiel are particularly fascinating because it talks about a connection of Sodom and Gomorrah and pride. Um, It's mentioned in Amos, Zephaniah, Matthew, Luke, Romans, and of course, 2 Peter, Jude, and even in Revelation. So 
This really is being called to our remembrance all throughout the word, Genesis through Revelation. So before we begin tonight, just a few reminders. Because these examples are examples of apostasy, we can imply that though this is about a group of Gentiles, they at one time or another heard the truth, had access to the truth, possibly even proclaimed the truth. Otherwise, they wouldn't be apostates. They would be people just ignorant of the truth, ignorant of the right thing. The very fact that this is in this letter communicates that they did know. Secondly, we often associate apostasy with false doctrine. And apostasy can very, very much be cases of false doctrine and false things being taught and said. But all three of these examples that Jude gives us actually have to do with lifestyles, apostate lifestyles. In Israel, we saw an example of a disobedient lifestyle. In the angels last week, we saw an example of a rebellious lifestyle. And tonight in Sodom and Gomorrah, we're going to see an example of a sexually immoral lifestyle. Now, obviously, these can also intertwine one with the other. We saw some sexual immorality last week as well, and it was even mentioned in the story of the wilderness wanderings, if you remember. But if I had to sum these up in three different categories, this is how I would do that. So thirdly, Jude's letter is as important and applicable to the 21st century church as it is to the first century. I believe even more so because the Bible tells us that apostasy will grow greater and greater before the return of the Lord. There will be a great falling away, a great apostasy. So we know that this is a letter applicable to us. So all of us here are probably familiar with the basic issues of Sodom and Gomorrah and why God destroyed these cities. So the more interesting question tonight is really, why is he using this as an example to instruct the church? And that's really one of the things we're going to focus on tonight because he's not writing to the world He's not writing to the non-believers or the unsaved saying, don't do this. He, he is writing to the church and using this as an example for our instruction. Now, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Anytime I ever get a new Bible, that is about the first verse that I write in my beginning. Always. It's one that before I go read, like I have several verses here that I read even before I go to study. And this is one of them, because if you're like me, there's some scriptures you get to and you scratch your head and you're like, what in the world could I possibly 
be getting from this? Well, it's something. We are to get something, and if we can't figure it out, we just haven't spent enough time in it, or we haven't gone to other places in the Word to help us figure it out. Um, Chuck Missler describes this verse this way, and this really helps me in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, teaching, this is where Scripture shows us what is right. In reproof, Scripture shows us what is not right. Correction, Scripture instructs us in how to get things right. And training in righteousness means Scripture teaches us how to keep things right. I love that because this last one even has this idea of something that is ongoing. We can be corrected, but then, oh, we need training to just keep going. So tonight, as we're looking at the words of Jude, we're going to approach this the same way we did last week. We're going to look at the words of Jude, then we're going to look at the words of Peter, and then we're going to go back to the um, historical account in Genesis. But I believe as we do this, I think we might learn some new things from this account that maybe we haven't seen before. This definitely happened for me. So last week, the examples of the angels took us to the days of Noah. And tonight's example takes us to the days of Lot. And both of these events were used by Jesus as signposts of the end. Everybody flip to Luke 17. I know I have it on your papers, but I actually want to start in verse 24. So look at Luke 17, 24. And just to give you some context, this is when, first of all, the Pharisees were asking him, um, how, are, how are we going to know when the kingdom of God is going to come? And then his own disciples are asking, how are we going to know when you're coming back? How, what are the signs? And this is what he says, starting in verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man in his day. He won't be coming in secret when he returns. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So in these three examples, um, or in these different time periods, Noah and Lot, think about what was happening in both of these times. With Noah, if you remember, it says man's mind was on evil continually. 
at the time of Lot, we see gross immorality, perversion, um, corruption. We're going to see violence will be seen here. Do any of these things sound familiar to today? Yes. And the Lord is saying, just as the conditions in these two periods, that's what it's going to be like prior to his return. And here's what we need to know, you all. The people in these days, look what was happening. They're just going on with their daily business. Marrying, getting married, planning, um, building until the day of judgment came. Both were warned. Noah warned for, what was it, 200 years? I always get that wrong, 100 years, um, where he was called a preacher of righteousness, warning the people. No one listened. And then judgment in one day, when the door of that ark closed, time was over. They could not go back. They could not make a different decision. Um, In the days of Lot, we're going to see Lot didn't do as good of a job as Noah in warning, but we'll see a few things here that we'll pull out. But the people were warned, didn't believe it, stayed, and judgment fell. And when we look ahead, and again, we just did revelation. Does the same thing happen? Yes, absolutely. People are warned and warned and given chance after chance But there is coming a time where the time of chances ends and no one can go back and make a different decision. So with us, thank God, even though we can go along our daily lives and still do these things that he's saying here, we know differently. We know Things don't always continue the way they are. That's one of the great lies, you all, that things just keeps going. Nothing changes. Everything just goes on. That, that is not what the Bible teaches. But this is what was happening. This is what Jesus is telling us is a sign of his coming. So now let's go to verse 7 in Jude And we'll just kind of dig out word by word. So just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. So it starts with a prepositional phrase here, just as, and later in the sentence, which likewise, both of these phrases link this example of apostasy to our last example. So how are the angels who sinned in the population of Sodom and Gomorrah similar? They both left their normal, natural, God-ordained way of doing things and did something else. They turned from it and did something else that they 
chose. So Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. We always hear about Sodom and Gomorrah, but we rarely hear about the other cities that are attached here. And it says, don't miss this, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities indulged in sexual immorality. So it was not just Sodom and Gomorrah. All of the cities were involved in this, and that's going to be very important later. If you look up here on the map, this area, oh, that didn't come out very well. Um, this is known as the cities of the plain or the cities of the valley, and they're first mentioned in Genesis 13, 10 through 12. This is when Lot and Abraham had been traveling and then their herds became too large. There was fighting between their people. They said, we need to break up. And Mo, or Abraham gave Lot the choice of where he wanted to go. He said, you choose and I'll go the other way. So it says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, and thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. So on the map, we see the other cities mentioned, Sodom, Gomorrah, here's Zoar, there's Adma, and Zebulun. Also what this map shows you, which is very interesting, that what has been found in this area, huge deposits of brimstone. Shocking. Absolutely. Um, so these were the cities of the valley, and we know all of them, the sentence continues, indulged in sexual immorality. Now, though we see the word sexual immorality all throughout the New Testament, definitely, this is the only time in the New Testament, only time, where it is phrased this way, indulged in sexual immorality, and it is translated from one single Greek word, which is Ekpornuo, and this means very graphic word to go a whoring, to give oneself over to fornication. The only time it's used that way in the New Testament. Now, it's used this way multiple times. I should have written this, so write this down. This word is used in the Old Testament in multiple places. Again, it's Greek, so you find this in the Septuagint, but in Hosea alone, it's six times, and we know that story, and Israel is constantly being called out for whoring, and this is the same idea here. So a very strong word against these cities. So they indulged in sexual immorality, and they pursued a natural desire. The King James um, phrases this, they went after strange flesh. 
This in Greek is aperkomai. It means to depart and to go in order to follow. So they're leaving something. They make an action and then they're continuing in this action. And what they're continuing in and pursuing is unnatural desire. Now, this word here, the strange, is actually, in Greek, heteros. So don't let that confuse you, because I know in this whole story we're talking about, really, homosexuality. But that word heteros just means one that is not the same. Um, from a different class, a kind, something different. In this case, it's a different desire. Their desire for what should be natural changed. They left it and they pursued something different. So this is what's going on here. So this we've seen before. It says this, they serve as an example. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, again, it says, these things happened to them as an example. These things really happened. These are historical events. They are not just stories. Again, things like brimstone deposits show that these were actual historical events. But... They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Again, another reminder that this story is for us. It is for our instruction. And we are most definitely at the end of the ages far more so than his original audience of the first century. Even though we know, ladies, that the last days, when that phrase is used scripturally, it means all the time between the first and second coming of Christ. Those are the last days. So when these people said we're in the last days, the original biblical writers of the New Testament, they were being totally truthful. We know we are in the last of the last days because several thousand years have passed since then. So they serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. So in Greek, this punishment is a judicial decision, especially a sentence of condemnation. So this is what they are facing and that punishment is eternal fire, a fire without beginning or end, never to cease. And we looked into that a little bit last week when we talked about the idea of Gehenna and what that is, a place of eternal fire. So for another connection um, where this account is also mentioned is 2 Peter 2, 6. And remember, the writing of Peter and the writing of Jude, sometimes they say almost the exact same thing. They talk about all the same topics and the strangest things that we find in Jude, Peter also talks about in his letter. 
So read that in 2 Peter 2, 6 this week and dig into that a little bit. Um, it's almost impossible to break the story of Sodom and Gomorrah away from the story of Lot. So though Lot is not mentioned in Jude, we're actually going to begin with him. So as we look tonight, we'll get a little background on Lot. So first off, this story, um, this event of Sodom and Gomorrah would have happened about 450 years after the flood. Now, Lot is first mentioned in Genesis 11 in a genealogy, and then he's mentioned in several subsequent chapters. So tonight, we're just going to hit the main points of where he's mentioned in these different chapters. So Lot comes from the line of Shem. So, of course, we have Noah after the flood and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So Shem has Terah. Terah has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haram. And Haram is Lot's father, which would, of course, make Lot Abram's nephew. So that's the situation here. Now, obviously, this is 450 years later. So there's people missing here. But if you ever look in genealogies in the Bible, and this, I'm just um, making it more concise anyway. But in many genealogies in the Bible, remember, they don't always mention every single person in a line. Sometimes they are strictly only mentioning the most important or well-known names to help you follow along with the content. But this is the line from which he comes. The name Lot means a covering, a veil, or a wrapping. So again, we see him first in Genesis 11 in the genealogy. And we know that um, Lot was actually with Abram and Terah before Abram was called to leave and go someplace different. In Genesis 12, we see the Abrahamic covenant, and this is when he is actually called to leave. And he first goes to Egypt, and we know that Lot accompanies him. In Genesis 13, they leave Egypt, and this is what we just read. They leave Egypt, their herds become so big, they start fighting, and Abraham allows him to choose the land and direction that he desires. We see a very eerie resemblance there to the progression we saw in other places with the angels last week and even in the story of the original sin. Lot saw something that he found attractive and good and he took it. Was there a response that really should have been Lot's response when Abraham said, you choose? Of course, of course. But he saw and he took. And that sets him on a pretty horrendous course that we're going to see. So we know that Lot is saved. He was considered righteous because of what 
Peter tells us in his letter. So let's read this first. And if he, God, rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So he's declared righteous several times here. So in this third example that Jude is calling to our remembrance, it's not Lot here who is the apostate. It's the city dwellers of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet we're going to see Lot is in a horrendous, horrible situation. So how can a righteous person end up in such a mess? Have you ever ended up in a mess? Yes, yes. So let's look for a minute first at his walk. So very quickly in Genesis 13, again, he lifted up his eyes. He saw something attractive that he wanted. In 1311, we see he chose for himself when there really would have been a better action. And then this caused a separation between him and Abraham. In um, 1312, we see that he dwelled in the cities of the plain. So that tells us he's here, he's staying here, but he's probably going around. It says the cities. So we don't know which ones, but he, he is getting familiar with all these cities in the plains. He is dwelling there. He doesn't stay. He remains. And then he pitches his tent towards Sodom. He makes his home in Sodom. Genesis 14, we see we have the first war of the kings. And this is the time where Abraham has to take his men, go in and save Lot and all his possessions. You can read about that there. So he's been saved once from Abraham. Genesis 18, we see Abraham's intercessory prayer for Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is when he is pleading with God and he says, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And he says, if I find 50, will you save the city? God says, yes. If I find 40, yes. If I find 30, Yes, if I find 10, yes. And we know he did not find 10, not even 10. So God sets into place the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is what we find in Genesis 19. So again, quickly, only looking at Lot, and then we're going to go back and go through the entire story. But just the story of Lot, we're going to see in 19.1, Lot is sitting in the gate. We know from other books in the Bible, we know what that means. He has a position in the city, some type of governmental um, decision in the city of um, Sodom. So he's not a nobody there. In Genesis 19.9, this man came to sojourn and he has become the judge. We see other people's 
view of him there. His attempt at a righteous life is met with contempt. Next, we're going to see that his sons-in-laws think that he is jesting when he's trying to get them out of there. Lot loses his testimony. Can't convince his own sons-in-laws to leave with him. Loses his testimony. Um, And with that, he lost his effectiveness in reaching the lost. We're going to see later in the story that he lingers. He's hesitant to leave. So the angels have to physically take he and his family out of the city. And lastly, the last mention of Lot's life. He is in a cave with his daughters in abject misery and sin. His own daughters impregnated with his children. And if you remember from when we studied Ruth, the oldest daughter had the son Moab, who became the tribe of the Moabites. The younger daughter had the son Ben Amorite, who became the leader of the Amorites. Both tribes, enemies of Israel. This was the This is how, this is the last we hear of his life. Obviously, we don't know exactly how it ended, but I think there's a lesson here that what we do know about him is ending here. Now, he is mentioned in several other places in the word, but this is the last we know of his life. So, a tragic story. Um... And this is going to be one that is pretty difficult to reconcile. How do we reconcile his righteousness, which he is called righteous, with his actions? Um, And and all I can say there, ladies, (laughs) is he was deemed righteous and God saved him from destruction. And I would say for all of us, it is God's grace and his grace alone that we can even be righteous and be saved from destruction. So we're going to have to let God do what God does and look at the heart and know that this is true. Lot did all these things and yet he is righteous And I don't know about you, but that actually gives me incredible comfort and hope. Um, So for your first application this week, look back at the reference in 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8, because it says something really interesting there about how he was tormented by what he saw. Now, think through how Lot was affected by the sin that surrounded him. And what does that tell us about him? I think this is the clue to where we get his righteousness. And for anyone 
a believer and a person in the world, sin should affect very differently. People in the world, they really don't have an effect by an, or an abhorrence to sin or when they see things or when they witness things. Should that ever happen to a believer? Not rhetorical. Should that ever happen to a believer? No. Sin should wreck us. It should torment us. And if it doesn't, we might have allowed ourselves to get a little too used to things. Um, This, I believe, is the only way that those two things can be reconciled is how he saw what was happening around him and what it was doing to him. We're going to see he made a lot of bad choices, absolutely, but his heart toward sin was definitely correct. So I actually just did that application for you, but do it on your own this week as well. Um, and remember, an apostate, we talked about this several weeks ago, it isn't a believer who sins because believers sin. But our reaction to sin, even in our own lives, when we sin, we should be immediately saddened by it, grieved by it, wanting to go to the Lord and make it right. That is the only correct response to sin in our life, not ignoring it, pushing it aside, not thinking it's any big deal. So now that we've looked a little bit at Lot, we're going to return to Genesis 19, and we're going to go through this whole story. This time, we're going to see the city dwellers and why this is an example of apostasy. So I've got the story written out in your notes. If you want to flip to your Bibles and follow along there as well, you can to give yourself a little chance to jot things down, whatever, in your own Bibles. So Genesis 19, 1 through 29. I'm going to read it, do a little commenting, and then we'll continue through the story. So starting in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So this was a city, we see, where it is unsafe for a man to be out at night, and Lot knew it. Lot knew it. That's why he was pressing them to come to his house. Verse 4. But before they lay down... The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. So don't miss that word, 
all the men of Sodom were involved in this. Here we see a unanimous, universal wickedness, so much so that the name of the sin itself, sodomy, is forever linked with this city. Verse 5, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. So there is a brazenness to their sin here. They're not trying to hide it. They're not ashamed of it. They're not trying to trick Lot. Hey, let us out. We want to talk to them. Though they might have other plans. They brazen, brazenly say what they are going to do. Um, they boasted of it publicly. In Isaiah 3, 9, and this is one of the connections that you'll read from that earlier list where this is mentioned. This is what Isaiah says. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. So again, kind of what we were talking about earlier, how sin should affect us. And really, we see no real effect of sin on these people. They boast of it. They proclaim it. um, Almost proud of it, as we see in Isaiah. So verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. So Lot alone, we see he is trying to protect them. Um, There appears to be no officials in this city to offer any help. Obviously, probably the officials themselves are a part of this. So we see corruption in every single level in this city. And then verse 8. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Um, So Lot offers to prostitute his own daughters to satisfy these men. Here we see a perfect example of small compromises in life leading to big choices where there are absolutely no good options. Lot has no good options. I still personally would not have taken that one, but he, he's, he is in a place where he can do nothing. Verse 9, but they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So, People who 
hate to be reformed hate those who try to reprove them. This is what we're seeing here. That, that, that is a common thing all throughout Proverbs, if you read it. Um, people who don't want to change, they, they will go against anyone who talks of change or tries to get them to see, see the right way. Though Lot did not practice the same sexually perverse acts as the men of Sodom, he was about to pay for his associations with them. Is it important who we allow ourselves to be around? Absolutely. Absolutely. This entire city, every man in this city was participating in this. Did he have anyone as a brother to fellowship with, to talk to, to bounce ideas or decisions off. No, he was totally alone. He, again, left Abram now totally alone in this situation, and he's about to pay for that decision. This is a very interesting phrase, so don't miss this. It says, now we will deal worse with you than with them. So again, we see here, these are not innocent Gentiles. These aren't people that had never heard about right or wrong, and they're behaving this way because they didn't know any better. They at least knew enough truth to know that what they were about to do was bad, because they said they're going to do worse to Lot. And several weeks ago, if you remember, one of the false teachings today that has done horrific things to society is this idea that man is inherently good. Man is not inherently good. All people are born with a sin nature. We are told all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Um, without God, without him saving and redeeming humanity, humanity does horrific things. Sometimes even with that, they can still do things that hurt others, but absolutely horrific, vile things without him. So these weren't innocent people that are about to get judged. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house and then shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the door, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. I can't imagine a better example of a debased mind than this. They have just been struck blind, and it does not stop them from trying to break down the door. Um, eventually, the situation does escalate, de-escalate, but it's not by change of mind or heart. It's by physical exhaustion. They finally just give up. And I guess they go home blind. 
Um, verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. This this is amazing. (laughs) This is amazing right here. These angels tell Lot, if there's anybody that you want to not be destroyed, go get them and they can come out with us. So Lot goes out. He went out and said to his sons-in-laws who were about to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. He lost all credibility. He had no credibility even with his sons-in-laws. They thought he was joking, and he stayed. And then it looks like Lot just gave up. We have no evidence that he went to anyone else. It appears he was given permission, <laughs> go, go, whoever, go, go get them, and we can take them out. And pretty much one no is what it looks like, and he gave up. Um, Will we get no sometimes when we try to share the truth with others? Of course we will. Of course we will. But we can't do what Lot did. And... Though it seems like this is some great, you go get whoever you want here. God has allowed all of us this precious role in helping to get people out of destruction. And it is simply to go tell them the truth. What Lot was saying is destruction's coming. Could we say the same thing? Ladies, destruction is coming. We don't know when. We don't know when. Lot knew when. We, we of course, do not know when, but we know the end of the story here, and destruction for the unrighteous is coming, and we really have the same call. Just go. Go tell them. Go tell them. And this is, this is Jude's urgency again that we see in his letter um, talking about all the lies that have infiltrated the church and just the absolute attack on truth in general. Can people really claim ignorance to the truth anymore? really can't. In Jude's day, they could. There would have been a lot of people that had not had access to um, Jesus being a man who walked the earth, who was crucified, who was risen. There would be a lot of people on the planet who had not known that. That, again, does not deny um, how God can reveal himself through his creation, but they would not have known that. 
people really, they can't claim that anymore. They, they simply can't. Truth is everywhere. People can get it. They have access to it. It would be a very rare thing for them not to have had access to the truth now. Can you see why there is such an attack against truth itself? Because it is in front of people, so people can't say, I don't know. All they can do is, I don't believe that. That's not actually true. That might be true for you, but it's sure not true for me. And this is why the attack on truth has become so great, because you really can't claim ignorance to any truth anymore. So continuing in verse um, 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and brought him out and set him outside the city. So they still didn't want to leave. They still wanted to stay. After witnessing what had just happened, possibly just hours before this, with people trying to break down his door, he lingered and wanted to stay and had to be forcibly removed. Verse 17 And as they brought them out, one said, that would be one of the angels, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. So Lot was given very clear directions in what to do and where to go. And yet here is his response. So the angels say, go into into the hills. And he says, oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one and my life will be saved? He said to him, Behold, I will grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow this city of which you have spoken. So clear directions from the angels who have just saved him. And Lot thinks he has a better plan. Is our plan ever better? No, no, absolutely not. So he asks for a nearby city to be spared, declaring it as a little one actually implies it's not as bad as the others. That's his excuse there. Let me go to this city because it's not as bad as Sodom. So the city that was spared, we learn, is the city of Zoar, which is kind of amazing if you look at this map. You can see... God can do whatever he wants to do. And he destroyed cities to the north and cities to the south. And somehow this one 
right in the middle of everything, was spared because Lot had asked for it. So he went there. Now later, and we're not going to get this far in the story, but if you read ahead later in verse 30, we see that Lot actually leaves the city of Zoar because he's scared to live there. And that's how he ends up in the cave with his daughters. So again, a plan that did not work. Um, So, verse 22, escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. That's how it gets his name. So the angels could not carry out their mission until Lot and his um, family had been taken out. So the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. So her disobedience cost her her life. And we're going to look a little more in detail to her in her in just a minute. Verse 27, And Abraham went out early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that, When God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So God knows how to save his own. And it looks here, we can see from this verse, possibly partly The reason for his salvation was Abraham. Abraham's care for him, love of him, prayer for him. Because in this, it it didn't even say that God remembered Lot. It said God remembered Abraham. This isn't in your notes because I just thought of it today. Who knows, as a righteous believer, what our prayers for others, our concern for others, our desire for others, our intercession for others might possibly prohibit in their life. That is an amazing thing, and we need to be taking advantage of that and praying and interceding for those that we love. So, again, not going to read it again, but that Corinthians verse that it says, these things were written for our instruction. So, what are some other things that we can learn from this account and glean from it? Well, Jesus himself in Luke 17, 32, tells us to remember Lot's wife. She was destroyed on the very brink 
of deliverance. Right at the end, she was out of the city, heading towards safety, yet she turned around. Um, We see in her an example of someone who was so married to the world that they couldn't let go. Lot himself lingered. She, She turned around. She did not want to leave. Is there any world in any of us that it's hard to let go of? If there is, we need to leave it behind and not turn back to it. She didn't take the advice that she was given. She didn't flee the city. Again, is there anything we should be fleeing that maybe we stay too close to. These are examples for instruction from Lot's wife. Finally, she was told to not look behind thee, and that is exactly what she did. Is there anything in our lives that we have been delivered from, yet we might look to longingly? As I was thinking about this one in my own life, um, I can definitely think about some things, ladies, where I look back and with certain people, I can even joke about those things, make light of some of these things, that those are things I never want to go back to. And... It is wrong to ever think of them in a longing or even joking way. Um, When God delivers us, when he sets us free, man, we need to be heading as far from those things as possible and never looking back and never remembering those things with any kind of rose-colored glasses because if it was sin, it's awful and we are to flee and stay away. Um, So first, we get lessons from Lot's wife. Secondly, something we see in this story is that the main issue here, really with the practice of homosexuality in these cities, was that it was accepted, affirmed as normal, and on display. Homosexuality is nothing new. It was not even new in Lot's day. The difference here is that it wasn't kept in the shadows. It wasn't considered a shameful thing. It was out in the open, on display. And whenever uh, whenever a society accepts and affirms, um, condones, and we see today even celebrates things like this, it is ripe for a judgment. So again, look at Isaiah um, 3.9. And in thinking of this sin, just think, are there any sins in our current 
culture and society that are accepted, condoned, not in the shadows anymore, on display, even celebrated. We could probably name several now, not just one. At the beginning of the lesson, we asked the question, why does God use this as an instructional example to the church? And what I would say here is that a person does not have to be directly participating in something in order to be on the wrong side of an issue. There there can be a lot of people that might not be practicing the sin that was apparent in Sodom and Gomorrah, but they can still be on the wrong side of this issue. And we see this in Romans, and I'm not going to read this whole thing tonight. Read this on your own this week. And we've gone through, I believe, this section in every class that we've done. It kind of connects with everything. But we see here in Paul's letters to the Romans how he's telling them that people knew God, but they don't honor him. They don't give thanks to him. They become futile in their thinking. They deny him as the creator. They claim to be wise, but they're actually fools. And God gives them over. And first he gives them over to lusts. Then we see they refuse to acknowledge him and God gives them over. And then they have debased minds. And he continues through this just progression of sin and what happens. And at the end, what I want to um, bring out tonight is the very end of this passage. It says, though they know God's righteous decree and that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So we have people that participate, but we can also have people that are just giving their approval to it. And that is a very dangerous thing. And we are seeing here, it's wrong. We can't approve of these things. So again, we see this acceptance and condoning and everything that is happening in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is why Jude is calling for the church to speak the truth and to fight for the truth. If the church isn't going to speak against sins like this, who is? Who is possibly... (laughs) going to stand up for what's right if the church doesn't. And unfortunately, what we're seeing today is a lot of acceptance even within the church in this, um, in this area. And if we have time, I'll show you a couple things tonight. But thirdly, so we can learn from Lot's wife, we can learn the, um, this idea that you don't have to be actually practicing a sin to be a part of it. And third, and, and this one is such a beautiful glimmer of hope, 
God is seeking to save even one. He stopped his destruction of this city until Lot and his family were safely out. Um, No matter how bad a society gets, God is looking for the righteous and he is ready, he is able, and he's willing to save them. And we actually see this in all three of the historical examples we've had. In the wilderness wanderings, there were two, at least, Joshua and Caleb. I believe there could be more because of Paul's words when he kept saying some of them were doing this, some of them, some of them. So at least two were saved, maybe some more. In the flood, we see eight, Noah, his wife, three sons, and their three wives. And in Sodom and Gomorrah, we see four, Lot, his wife, and his two daughters. So in every one of these examples of judgment falling, there's always a remnant that God saves. There will always be a remnant of God's people, no matter how bad things get. And God will save his remnant from destruction. So before, last thing I want to say tonight, and then I'm actually going to turn this off and we can um, take questions and discuss. Um, God will always protect and save his own. And... Many of you all in this room, I know, and I know very well, and I know this question is not applicable to you, but if there is anyone in this room where you cannot (laughs) say that you are 100% absolutely, positively sure that you know of your eternity, that you know you have been saved, you are one of these people that are saved from ultimate destruction that that's that's what we're saved from the wrath of God that is coming on the earth and destruction that's what he saves us from that is incredible and it is offered to anyone who receives it the remnant is small it is my belief the remnant at the end might be small as well God tells us that the road is narrow and not many find it. Um, So if there's anyone in here that does not know that they know, know that they know, please don't leave tonight until you do. Um, And with that, I'm going to turn this off and we'll pray. Well, actually, I'll pray and then turn this off and have questions. God, again, thank you for this word and your message in Jude. Lord, we thank you that you offer salvation. God, we thank you for justification, that at the very point in our lives that we bow to you as Lord and Savior, we are free from the penalty of sin. We do not face your wrath. We do not face judgment on our sins, and we do not face an eternity without you. Lord, we thank you for sanctification, 
We thank you that once we are saved, Lord, with the help of the Holy Spirit, you take us through this life, molding us and making us more and more into your image. So, Father, I ask that you help each and every one of us here on that walk to walk out sanctification with fear and trembling. And, God, we thank you also for future glorification. God, this world isn't it. Lord, we have something great to look to, glorification, eternity with you. God, we just say thank you for this today. And Lord, I pray for any of us who are saved, may we never rest in our own security. Lord, may we be women who are urgently speaking truth to others to help them see so that they might come into the knowledge of you as well. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who goes before us and prepares hearts. But God, you have given us the job to speak words. So may we do that courageously and boldly to a world that needs to hear it. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.